verses, like the verses directly before this passage, they tell us that, that Jesus is just beginning his ministry. He's going from, from synagogue to synagogue or from church to church, teaching and bringing glory to the Father. And then, then he goes to Nazareth. He comes to his hometown and, and things go a little bit differently. Let's read the word of the Lord this morning. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 30. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here, or Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath and the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down from the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word today, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Expectation. Expectation. The dictionary defines expectation as a strong belief that something will happen or be the case in the future. We all have expectations. We all have things that we believe will happen in the future. For some of us, that, you know, that may be that we will grow old, that we will live near our family our whole lives, that we will find a good job and that we'll get married, that we'll have kids and, and grandkids one day. And they will live happily ever after. And, you know, we'll have the white picket fence in that house that we always wanted. Some of us have expectations put on us, don't we? The expectations that we will find a good job, that we will get married, that we will provide grandkids one day, that we will follow in the footsteps of our mother or father, that we will get good grades in school, that we will 
move out of the house or that we will support family that won't move out of our house. Expectations. When I was in the band in, uh, I don't know, like 2009, I guess, 2009, there was a big festival and it was called Cornerstone. And it, it was in, uh, it was just south of Chicago, about three hours in Illinois. And, and this was like a huge concert, like a huge festival for my style of music. It was all like, I mean, it was real heavy. It was long hair, bandanas, screaming. He didn't shower the whole time. Like everyone just like, you just went there. It was, this, it was on this big like campground area. And you would, so you just camp. And they had all of these stages just set up all over the place. And it was like the hard Christian music. If you were into hard Christian music, this was the place to go. And if you played hard Christian music, this was a place to go and like get recognition for people to like know who you were. And they would have all of these, they call them generator stages. So they'd have like the big stages where all the bands that everybody knew would play, right? Like that's where all the awesome, like big, like Under Oath, uh, Double Wears Prada, like all these big bands would play on these stages. And then they had these generator stages where you would go and as a band, you would just sign up for a time slot. And, and if you signed up that hour, like at that time, you just got the play. So you had your half hour set, you'd just go. You'd, so bands would come from all over the states with like their vans and their, like their everything, you know, their, their trailers. And they'd all come and this was just like this huge, massive festival of hard Christian music in like the wilderness basically of, of Southern Illinois. There was nothing else around for miles and they probably planned it that way because nobody, no, most normal people don't want to listen to that kind of music and they don't want that keeping them up all the time. So like it was just out in the sticks and my band was planning to go. Like, this was the thing that we were going to do. We'd, we'd kind of exhausted a lot of our, our other opportunities. We were pretty good, but we weren't known. Like, we didn't, we didn't have a real following. We had a MySpace following at that point a little bit, which is kind of weird. That totally dates me and, and the band uh, a bit. But that was a thing, like, that bands did. You had your MySpace page. If you didn't, then it was, you weren't a band, really. And so we had that. We had our recordings. We had our stuff. We had our, our set list down. And we had a van, we had a trailer, we looked legit. Like we had the right equipment, we had the right sound, we knew what we were doing. We were pretty good. And this was our shot, we had it all planned out. We knew where the big bands were gonna play. We knew what stages we wanted to play. So like, the band that sounded like you, when, when they were done, that's when you wanted to schedule your band. So you'd get on your thing and you'd do it and, and, and you'd sign up for that time so that as the people coming out of that show, they'd come right into your music and they'd be like, yeah, these guys kick. And we'd be like, yeah, man, come like listen to our stuff, buy our merch. We had shirts made. We had all the stuff. Our expectation was that this was going to be the time. This was going to be our opportunity. We were going to do it. And before we did it, uh, one of our, one of our, our my brother-in-law, very, very good friend of mine, uh, the guitarist in our band, the responsible one in, in many ways was like, before we go and drive this eight-hour trip in, to Illinois, we need to get our van, like, tuned up. So we're going to get the oil changed, we're going to get the sparks plugs rotator cleaned or replaced or whatever they do. I don't know. Obviously, I'm a gearhead. I have no idea what they do with some of those things other than I've had to replace them every once in a while. And on that 15-passenger van, they're a pain in the rear. So we took it to Midas, and, uh, and, and we, we got it all done. We got everything set. We've taken time off work. The time came. We all got up in the morning. It was like 6 in the morning. We're starting our drive to, to Illinois. We get in that van, and we start cooking. And we get about, uh, like... Five, ten minutes down the road and, and something just doesn't feel right. Like the van's just not responding the way that it's supposed to. And, and, and so we're, we're cooking along and uh, we're starting to watch like 
the, the speedometer is like acting all funny and, and it won't accelerate right and then it kicks in real hard and then, it, and then it backs off and we're like, what is going on with our van? And so we had to park and we start like messing with it a little bit. I mean, again, none of us are real, like we're not, we're not real gearheads. We don't work on vans. We don't work on cars a lot. And, and so we're kind of like messing with like, what is happening here? And it got to the point where we realized that we weren't going to be able to take this van to Cornerstone. Like that was something that we just weren't going to be able to trust it to make it there. And so all of this planning, all of this preparation, all of this work and research and time and money spent and all the things that we had done with the expectation that we were going to go to Cornerstone and we were going to shoot our shot. Like this is our opportunity. This is our plan. This is how we're going to do it. We've done all these other things that we know to do and nothing has really worked for us. This is our possibility of making it as a band someday. We didn't put all the eggs in that basket, but man, we pushed it real hard. This was where our hopes were put. This is where our expectation was put. What had happened is when we took that van to Midas, the guy who did our spark plugs mixed the wires. And so they put the wrong wire on the wrong spark plug and it fried the uh, computer in our, in our van. And our van it's never, it was never the same. We were never really able to drive it like we wanted to drive it. We got the computer replaced, we got things done, but it never, the van is not, to this day, it still does not function as it should, as it could. And it, it, it killed us. You know, to, to borrow a term from Charles Dickens, we had great expectations of the future. We had done all the right things. We had checked the right boxes. We had the right equipment. We had the right gear, we had the right merch, we had the right sound, we knew where we were going, we had done the research. We were pushing this forward. And though that missed trip to Cornerstone was not the final nail in the coffin of our musical careers, the loss of our transportation and the discouragement of that week certainly started us down the path to the end. Some of us, I, I couldn't go. Some of our guys still went there because we had tickets. Like we bought our tickets. We were going to this thing. And uh, some of our guys, they, they, they hopped in a car and they drove down and they camped it out. I, I couldn't go. I couldn't go and see the bands that I wished I was playing with. I couldn't go and see the, the stages that I wanted to be playing on. I just couldn't do it. So I, I had that week off. I just, I stayed home and moped around. That was the beginning of the end. The expectations that we had spent seven years building began to really come apart at that point in time. So as a band and as individuals, our expectations were not realized. They did not come to pass. What happens when the things that we expect to happen don't? What happens when the things that we expect to happen don't? How do we deal with the disappointment? If the reason our expectations failed is because of another person... You know, someone we, we put our hope, our faith, our expectations in someone else, and they let us down. How, how do we react towards them? This morning, our text deals with expectation. The expectation of the people of Nazareth. Jesus has come home. He's back in Nazareth, the town he grew up in, the town he was raised in, the town some of his family still lived in. And Jesus heads to the synagogue, the church, the religious meeting place in town, and he stands up to read. And he's, he's given the text of Isaiah, he's given the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads this passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What a wonderful passage. What a wonderful passage. A passage of good news, a passage of liberation, of freedom. A passage that proclaims that someone will come to set us free. Free from the obstacles in our path, whether that is captivity or blindness or social status or whatever may be keeping us repressed or oppressed. There is someone who is coming to save us. A great passage. And then Jesus sits down, which, which doesn't mean he sat back down in his spot in like the congregation and he go back to his pew. You know, not, not like we would do when we're done reading scripture prayer or maybe when we're done leading worship or, or whatever it may be. He's not rejoining the congregation from the position for, or for the position of a teacher at this time was to sit. So he read and then he sat down getting ready to teach, not to listen, but to teach. And then he tells those who are gathered around, right? So he's in that position of teaching and he tells those who are gathered around, he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's a bombshell. That's a, that's a straight up like mic drop. Whatever you want to call it, that's what Jesus just did. He said, all those things that you heard that the, that the, the prophet Isaiah, that he proclaimed, that I just read, that, that someone would come and set you free. Yeah, that's me. I'm the guy. This prophecy has been fulfilled right now, right here, as you listen to me read it, and then listen to me proclaim the truth, it is done. I'm the guy. And at first, the people in Nazareth, I mean, they're, they're somewhat at all, right? This, this sounds pretty good. And then, and then a voice raises a question. It's a question that's been in the back of the mind of, of all those from Nazareth that are in the synagogue. It, it just needed to push its way to the front hard enough. And when it finally does, the question is asked, Hey, isn't, isn't that Joseph's boy? Isn't that Joseph's boy? In Mark 6, verses 1 to 6, we read that this question was one of doubt with a bit of like derision like mixed in. Don't we know this guy? He grew up here. Like, we, we know his parents, his brothers, his sisters. We remember the scandal of, of when he was born. Like, we, we remember this stuff. And, I mean, his sisters still just live, like, down the block. We saw this guy grow up. We watched him in the school musical. You know, we remember when he learned to walk and when he learned to talk. We know all about you, Jesus. So how could you come up in here and claim to fulfill this prophecy? What gives you the right? How could you come in here and act like you're so much better than us? Like you're the one that Isaiah is talking about all those years ago. We know where you come from. We know who you are. And Jesus knows what they're getting at. They want him to prove it. They want him to prove it. They want him to perform miracles. They want him to bless his hometown. If you're this awesome redeemer, if you're this, this promised deliverer, just as you claim to be, prove it. 
right here in Nazareth. Bless us. Bless us. There are expectations that come with the promised Savior, the promised Deliverer. There are expectations that are put on God. Do we put expectations on God? Do we expect God to work or act in a particular way? Maybe in our favor or, or maybe against someone else? Because that's a big part of what's happening in Nazareth, right? Yeah, they want to be blessed. But the bigger part of what they want is freedom from their oppressors. They want to be free from the Romans. They want to be their, their own nation. They want to see the rebellion start. They want to see the rebellion start. Jesus stood up and read a prophecy about one who would proclaim liberty to the captives, one who would give liberty to the oppressed. They see themselves as captives, as oppressed by outside forces, which are keeping them from being a country of their own, and they want the rebellion to start. Let's see you do this thing, Jesus. Let's see you do it. Do we put expectations on God? This week, as I'm sure most of you, if not all of you know, New York State passed the Reproductive Health Bill. This bill expands the reach of abortion, making it illegal up until the baby's due date should the mother's health be at risk. Not life, but health. And, and it doesn't specify physical health. And, ulti- and so it could be mental, it could be any, any kind of health. Any kind of health. And ultimately, this, this question of health is up to the doctor's discretion. It's up to the doctor's discretion. This bill also protects abortion in New York should Roe versus Wade be overturned someday in the Supreme Court. Now this decision was applauded. It was given a standing ovation. The top of the Peace Tower in New York City was lit up in pink to celebrate what is being championed as a victory for women all over the state of New York. Now listen, I'm, I'm not bringing this up to be political, so please don't see it that way. Some things just transcend politics, and whichever side you may lean towards or whichever president you may like or may not like. Just as we should be taking a stand and calling out conservative white men for standing on a college campus with torches in support of segregation, so we should also be calling out the murder of the most helpless among us. These issues transcend politics. They are about people. About the worth of people. And politics doesn't get to claim them and make them off topic. Because people matter. Lives matter. And as I, as I watched that room stand and clap and saw that tower light up in pink, I was brought back to a room that in some ways I haven't really been able to leave the past few weeks. Again, as as many of you know, our little girl Ava Hope was stillborn on January 10th, and she was 20 weeks old. As I held her body and mourned our loss, it was clear that she had some development to go. She She wasn't fully developed 
that she wasn't ready to be born yet. That she wouldn't have made it on her own had her heart not stopped beating in the womb. What was also very clear was that she was human. She was the beginning of a person. She was developing. She was growing. She was fighting for life. She was a person. And people matter. And it's, it's hard to find words that I'm allowed to say from the pulpit or just say, period, that accurately, accurately express the emotions that filled me as I saw that room stand and clap and that tower light up in pink. I wanted God to smite those people. I wanted God to use a force of nature to rip through that bright pink beacon of murder and sin right off the top of that building and hurl it into the ocean. And then, and then the Facebook posts start rolling in. Outrage is expressed. Even people that may support abortion at some stages being grossed out and disgusted by how far the envelope is being pushed. I saw Bible verses about the judgment of God being poured out on heathens, being attached to announcements of the decision. Just this morning, I, I saw a, a post from the Babylon Bee, which is a satirical Christian site, so it's, it's meant to be a joke. But it said, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah are wondering what's taking God so long with the United States. You know, you see these, these posts pull in, and, and there's a part of me waiting in expectation of the Lord's judgment. There's a part of me waiting in that, a you'll get yours attitude that was, was building in the back of my heart. And then I read a post that was shared by one of my friends, the pastor's wife down in Bunker Hill, who just had a baby herself a week ago. And I'm going to share it with you this morning. It read... As we pass the 46th anniversary of legalized abortion in the U.S., and as the state of New York passes a bill expanding women's freedom to abort their child and redefining personhood, I think it is crucial for us to remember at least two things. First, God himself became a fertilized egg in Mary's body. He became a developing fetus. He became an infant in utero, imparting unparalleled dignity to and evidencing the personhood of every point of human development from conception to birth and beyond, of course. The strongest proof of human personhood at every stage of development is the fact that the divine person, God the Son, became every stage of development. Now that's beautiful. And the second part is this. But secondly... At least one person, or at least at least, sorry, but secondly, at least one reason God became an infant in the womb is so that he might, by his life and suffering and death and resurrection, secure lavish forgiveness and love's eternal embrace for parents and doctors who have taken infant lives. I don't know about you, but that second statement hit me right in the gut. Because I know it's true. It's incredibly true. It's fantastically true. 
And as much as I want to see those people punished, as much as I wanted them to receive the consequence for their idolatry, as much as my expectation was that God would be so offended he would smite and remove this travesty, this blight, as angry and offended as I was and still am that they would classify my little girl as someone not worthy of being considered human and a candidate for having her life aborted, I knew that that final statement was true, that it is true, that Jesus' body was knit together in a womb and that he lived his life, suffered and died and rose again so that even those who have taken infant lives both parents and doctors, might be forgiven. That they would know how much God loves them. That they should confess their sin, or should they confess their sin. He is faithful, and he is just, and he will forgive them. Just as he has promised to forgive us. Though we may want to attach values to sin, right? Stealing a car is so much worse than stealing a candy bar, right? Like that's, we want to attach values to these things. All sin is missing the mark. And all of us sin, every one of us. And so we need the Savior, the Savior that Christ reveals himself to be in this passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he read, because he has anointed me. To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, those in Nazareth at that time were looking for a political leader, a political savior. Jesus wasn't there for that. He wasn't there for that. He was the leader, the savior that they needed. He didn't come to liberate, to free political captives, but spiritual captives. He came to give sight to the blind. One of the verses that I have seen linked to the reproductive health bill is Isaiah 50, or sorry, Isaiah 5, verse 20, which reads, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. When you put light for darkness, you are blind. You are surrounded in darkness. You cannot see. But Jesus came to give sight to the blind. To take us out of the darkness that we have clothed ourselves with. To give us freedom. Freedom through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in our place. Freedom because he rose again and conquered that sin that blinded us, that oppressed us. There is freedom in the gospel. There is freedom in Jesus Christ. I don't know what darkness you may be clothing yourself in this morning, this week, this month, this year, this lifetime. I don't know what darkness haunts your past. I don't know what darkness you will encounter in your future. What I do know is that God loves you. 
I know because the Bible proclaims that there is nowhere you can go, nowhere you can hide, that the love of God will not find you. There is nothing that you can do that will cause God to stop loving you. And because of that love for you and his desire to be in a relationship with you, he sent his son to die for you. Our passage this morning reveals that Jesus is the one who paid the price that we could not pay. He is the one who died to give us freedom, to give us sight, to give us liberty from the bondage of sin. Regardless of what our expectations may be. Our expectations do not define our Savior. But they can rest in Him. What a hope, what a promise we have.